Welcome to the Travel Tales Podcast. The winners are the, the people with the most stories. One of the great things about traveling is the people that you meet. I've slept in bus stations, like yeah. I've slept on people's floors. And it's already on fire, and then there's just a gigantic, huge explosion, like out of a Hollywood movie. It's not right or wrong, it's just different. We hired like 10 Chinese prostitutes to come be our audience. We were kidnapped by nuns in Puerto Rico. <laughs> not a good idea to be high when you're packing. You forget a lot of stuff. I got swine flu. By the time you've lived through it, it's just a good story. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Travel Tales Podcast. My guest today is Rob Babarad. Before we get to Rob, here's a few announcements. Our website is TravelTalesPodcast.com. Go there and see articles that I've written, see articles that some of the guests have written. You can see photos of the guests. You can see links to their social media. You can see links to our social media. And by that, I mean Travel Tales Podcast on Instagram, Travel Tales Pod on Twitter. We have a Facebook page, Travel Tales Podcast. There are links to Stitcher Radio and Apple Podcasts. We're on Spotify. We're on iHeartRadio. We're basically everywhere you get your podcasts, so if you're listening on those platforms, I'm going to ask you, as I always do, to give us a good rating, give us a thumbs up, give us a plug, say a few nice things. I don't ask you for money, that's all I ask, because it boosts our presence there and helps more people find us, so if you can do that, I'd appreciate it. If you've got questions about travel, if you want to write me and say nice things, or maybe you think you'd be good for the show or know somebody would be good for the show, you can write me at TravelTalesPodcast at gmail.com. Once again, that's TravelTalesPodcast at gmail.com. I mentioned earlier we have a Facebook page, and I just got notice just in the last couple days from Facebook that you can post podcasts on your podcast page on Facebook now. You click the link, and somehow they just automatically upload on there. So I guess we're going to be on our Facebook page. You can listen to us on there. And as soon as they started uploading episodes, immediately I got warning episodes that they flagged the music as being copyrighted or owned by Sony or whatever it is. Well, all my episodes, if you listen, you know that they have some kind of musical interludes. And I always try to have music that corresponds to whatever we were talking about or to the guest or whatever. It's kind of a fun thing I do that Letterman and Paul Schaefer used to do on the old Letterman show. The theme music that the guest walked out to corresponded to the guest in some way. It was kind of fun. I always have fun picking the music. But if it's going to be tagged and muted by Facebook... Maybe it's wise that I don't put that transition music in anymore, or maybe I should just put it in at the end. So if you listen to us on Facebook, and I'll introduce the guest, and there's like a pause of 45 seconds, it's because I used copyrighted music. I'm hoping that doesn't happen, but maybe it will. So I'd like to avoid that in the future. So you might hear some generic transition music. I'll still put maybe some cool music at the end, because I don't care if it mutes at the end. The interview's over. I don't know. We'll see. Do I play by Facebook's rules? Screw you, Zuckerberg. Whatever. Anyway, I also mentioned that you could write me if you think you'd be right for the show. And that's what this episode's guest did. Robert, or Rob Babarad. Boy, I gotta get that name right. Babarad. B-A-B-I-R-A-D. Easy to screw up. You'll see during this episode, I screw it up. Anyway, he's a Long Island native who went into teaching in inner city schools, became quickly disillusioned with that, and who could blame him? (laughs) (laughs) and then uh, studied law and went over to England and studied law there, lived briefly in Hungary, did a bunch of traveling, and then wrote a book called In Transit Passenger. It's available on Amazon and at Barnes & Noble. Calls it a combination of self-help, travel, and a memoir. Rob reached out to me, thinking he might be a good fit for the show, and he was right. I enjoyed talking to him and meeting him, and I hope you like listening to his travel tales. Please enjoy my chat 
with Rob Babarad. You're in New York right now, mm-hmm. and you contacted me, and I appreciate that. Well, I think I've had a pretty interesting uh, life so far. Um, my background, I for for a while, I ended up in England over at Oxford and um, spent some time there. And then I I was initially a high school teacher, but then I went on to the law. And it was actually my experiences in the legal field that um, kind of made me get back in touch with who I really was, which is I love traveling. I love meeting people. I love different cultures and moving around the world. And I just said, you know, the law is not for me. And that was what actually led into writing even the book. It was over 10 years of journals that I had kept while traveling to different places throughout the world. And I ended up going back to Hungary and becoming a Hungarian citizen um, as a result of the experiences that I had in the legal field. And that was what it was this life changing kind of event. Um, so you know, I'd love to share all, all of that. And there were, there were all kinds of interesting things along the way, little anecdotes. And that's, you know, that's what led to even writing the book. Finally, I said, you know what, I'm going to go back through all these old journals. I'm going to put it together. And, you know, this is the first half of my life. And hopefully, you know, there'll be a lot more experiences and there'll be something else later on down the road. We'll see. Right. <laughs> uh, Rob, tell me where you're from originally. Are you a Kansas guy? No, I'm actually from Long Island, New York. So hey. just outside of New York City. All right. <laughs> Which town? Is it Massapequa? Can I guess that one? Levittown? You're actually almost dead on. I'm in <laughs> Babylon, which is the right, like, five minutes from Massapequa. Wow, that's amazing. I think I played a... I, well, I lived in Brooklyn for a little bit in the 90s, okay. and I played a, a a comedy club. I don't know if it was a comedy club or a bar that did comedy two nights a week, but it was. I remember it being in Babylon. Oh, wow. Oh, my gosh. So, that's yeah, I went, I went out there. <laughs> You don't forget a, a name like Babylon, really. No, no. It's right. The, the wicked city, right? <laughs> right. From the biblical days. <laughs> yeah. So, um, Love that. Uh, so this journey you took, I mean, uh, was, was traveling always in the plan? It seemed like you just kind of made this up along the way and it kind of changed. Yeah. I mean, basically, um, just evolved along the way because it started in with going over to England. That was my first time outside of the country. And, and how I, old were you? Oh, I was in my early twenties at that point. I was just finishing college, and you know, my first time leaving leaving the country. Me too. Twenty one oh, after college. Did you do the whole year uh, Eurail backpacking thing? That's exactly what I did. Exactly sure. Eurail, and I went up to Scotland. I went over to France, and I was. Um, studying there at Oxford at New College at, for, for that time period. So that was my my base. And then I went off to, you know, all these different other situations. Um, but yeah, so that was my first time out of the country. And then that's even what, with doing the book, it was, the goal was to get back to that younger and that, that self, the, you know, that more authentic version of myself who, you know, loved the traveling and loved meeting people from all over. Um, so that, that was, you know, it was like this self-discovery almost. Well, say the name of the book again and, um, and where people can find it. Okay. It's In Transit Passenger, Making the Journey Matter. 
and it's on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, all the major sites. And how is it different than all these other travel memoirs that are out there and different from the ones that I've interviewed people about? What, what, is, what is it about yours? Well, the goal with mine was I put prompts, I put your passport questions at the end of each chapter because I wanted people to, I didn't want it to be about, oh, I went here or I went there and met this or that person. I wanted it to be more people looking at their own lives and saying, um, to reflect on their own lives and see what changes they want to make for themselves. So I would talk about the different travel experiences that I had and what I learned from them, what, you know, someone I met or what, what that experience meant to me. And then I would ask a question at the end of every single chapter saying, you know, how does this relate to your own life? What, what changes or what would you like to do in your own life based upon this experience that I had and what I learned. And now, you know, people interpreting it for themselves. I didn't want it to be just about my journey. I wanted it to be about the people who were reading it about their own respective, you know, journey through life. Well, give me an example. Say uh, you have one chapter on, I don't know, uh, England. Let's pick that one. Or do you have one? Pick, pick one of your chapters and tell me the question at the end. No, that's fantastic. Um, actually, there's a place in London, the uh, Cabinet War Rooms, where Churchill went underground and they had all the, they led the war effort, you know, in the 40s during World War II, right? So when I was down there, I thought, you know, this is great. You know, they had a list on the side of the room before you could go into the room of only maybe six or seven people, whatever it was, that could actually come into that room because that's where all the major decisions were made in this map room. And they had the big map and they still have pinholes in of where all the you know ships and everything that they track. So I thought, you know, in our own lives, we can't let everybody in on our dreams or what we want to achieve or anything because there's always going to be a lot of detractors. There's always going to be a lot of people that don't believe in you and then there's going to be people that do believe in you. So who would you... In that context, who would you let into your own personal map room? Who would you want with you that believes in your dreams and that's going to support you? Who, who would you let in to your life? Who are your closest associates and people that you can trust that you know would believe in you and want to see you succeed? So basically, that was the gist of one of the questions was, um, who would you let into your own personal map room based on that? experience that I had had. Yeah, that's interesting. So uh, how many different locations does the book cover? Uh, I think there's about, I want to say maybe, maybe like 15 or so, because it's, it's North Africa, it's um, England, France, Scotland, um, where else? The West Indies, briefly. I didn't do Colombia, even though I, I love Colombia, but I'm saving that for another time. That's, that's a country I love. I love, I absolutely loved it down there, but that's for something else. Um, and then I talked about my time in Quebec um, and also in the United States here, of course, Kansas, California, New York, because that's the frame around which, you know, I built the book. Oh, Italy is also in there. Um, yeah, I think that's, I'm trying to think if there's anywhere else that I mentioned. Are most of these places places you just visited or how many of these places you actually, you said you lived in Hungary. I lived in Hungary and I lived in England. And then okay. the other places are ones that I visited. <laughs> so how did Hungary come about? Let's talk about that for a little bit. 
Okay, sure. Well, Hungary um, was after my um, time with the, with the law and the legal field, after coming back to New York, um, I went for my Hungarian citizenship and I went into the consulate in Manhattan and then I had to actually go to Budapest to finish the citizenship process. You have to physically go there. Was this because are you a Hungarian descent and you wanted an EU passport? Was that, or were you planning on living there and working? It was, it was a mixed bag. It was also, it was because of um, my father being from there, from Hungary and obviously getting the EU passport, but it was also because I wanted to reestablish myself over there, which is something I'm still working on at the moment um, with working for the European Union and working over there in Hungary, ultimately. So it was it was a mixed bag of, um, that led to my decision to go over there. Okay. And how long did you live there? I was about, at the time, I was there for about four months initially. So that, okay. You know. What year was this? This was um, about a year ago. About a year oh, ago okay. Now. Yeah. All right. Uh, I've only been to Budapest, which I enjoyed. Um, but I find it, it's funny, you know, Hungary is such a history yeah. Um, yeah. and not all of it's nice, but no, no country's histories are nice, really. <laughs> very true, very true. But what kind of vibe did you get from um, the young people there? I find in like Eastern Europe, the one things I like about it, um, as opposed to say Western Europe or old, quote unquote, old Europe that they call it. <laughs> Um, is that the young people in certainly in former Eastern Bloc countries seem to be more positive about the future than say kids in France, Spain, who have kind of resigned themselves in Italy, who've kind of resigned themselves yeah. to the fact that they're not going to have it as good as their parents. Yeah. Whereas, like you know, I've been in the Czech Republic or Croatia or. Um, right. Hungary a little bit and uh, Estonia and places like that mm-hmm. where they seem pretty positive for the future. Yeah. And there's a different vibe I find. Do you find the same thing? Oh, I, I totally agree with you. I think in more Western Europe, you see this more just acceptance among the young people of what is and of the status quo. But like you said, in Eastern Europe, you see more of among the young people, you see more of this optimism towards the future generally, you know, towards, you know, there's more of a, there's more of a hopefulness toward, you know, how things could evolve in the future, because, you know, these countries like Hungary, for example, has such a history of the communist era and of then the switching to capitalism. And now, even right now, you have such controversy between the different political parties there, Jobbik, Fidesz, all these different, you know, Political uh, Victor Orban and all these different you know political issues. So yeah, I think the young people are more optimistic, and I think in not everyone. I mean, I've met some that aren't, but in general, you know, yeah, I, I totally agree. With you. But I mean, that being said, like you brought up uh, the way the uh, the politics are going. You know, having traveled through Europe in the last ten years, there has been this kind of real right-wing wave that has gone through there and a lot of it's fueled by anti-immigrant stuff um i'm not 
certain, I don't know what is hung, Hungary's immigrant situation and has there been like a huge backlash as well? Yeah, I mean, this is a huge divide because there's, you know, with the European Union, there's all the free movement laws and all of the, you know, basically if you're a member of one member state, you can move and have the same rights anywhere else. But then you also have a lot of nationalist sentiment in places like Hungary that are very much opposed to the European Union, want to assume a similar situation to like Brexit with the UK, and they want to get out and they want to be more independent, more nationalist, and not have to conform to all these regulations and rules that the EU is constantly putting down. So there's, there's a divide. I mean, there's, there's some young people that are more, you know, they, they want the EU, they want, you know, all, you know, free flow of people and, you know, everything else. And then there's also this nationalist sentiment. So I'd say it's a pretty divided, pretty divided country in a lot of ways. How were you accepted when you went there? I mean, I was a foreigner. I had, I mean, it, it varied because my language skills were so poor. <laughs> I'm still learning, you know, so it was, it was a real struggle. And some people, you know, a lot of people were very nice, but when you're struggling to learn the language, that becomes very frustrating to a lot of other people. You know what I mean? They, they, um, it, most of the people were very nice and it was a very positive experience, but it was very, very difficult because Hungarian is a very hard language to learn. And I had studied Spanish most of my life. So well, this makes sense. Was, yeah. So this was, um, it, it was it was hard going. I mean, going to the gross, you're going not to the grocery store, but there was a small shop down the street. And I mean, I would live on like salami and beer, kielbasa yeah. and beer. And I was sleeping on the floor in this apartment that I had rented from this lady in Manhattan. And she's like, oh, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful place. And it was terrible. It was like this derelict building. The elevator was like from <laughs> the 1920s. You, you never knew if you were going to plunge to your death on this thing. Like it was the cable, the pulley and all. And it, it was a wild and then I went and I lived with this other family out in the countryside near Slovenia. And, you know, you're drinking the palinka from morning till night and you're eating the meats in the morning. It's it's a totally different culture. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. I went on and on. Sorry. No, that's right. It's just like how um, I assume your dad spoke the language, but did he did he ever speak it in the house? I mean, did you pick up at least conversational stuff? No, ironically enough, he never taught it to my sister and I. So we kind of had to, we had to fend for ourselves. And I mean, even this, this lady was yelling at us at the passport office because, you know, in Hungary, you sign your name the other way, your, your last name comes before your first name and all. And, you know, there's all these little things that you, you pick up. But so every night I'd have my grammar books, I'd have the newspapers, everything spread out on the floor. And I'd be teaching myself the language as I went along and then trying those words out the next day. But your money does go a little farther there, from what I remember. I mean, what does a like a standard rent in Budapest cost for a one-bedroom apartment? Oh, I'd say I mean it's hard to remember now, but I'd say like maybe like six hundred, maybe six hundred US or so a month. Um, depends where you go in the city. You know, you can't go where they're taking advantage of tourists. You know, right? Yeah, yeah. I do remember. Whenever I think of Budapest, which is the only part I went to in Hungary, I think of a few things. 
and one <laughs> the public baths. Yes, I remember that. You know, the big famous one. It's like a big yellow building in a park. The St. Cheney Baths. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yes, went yes, to that absolutely. Uh, and beautiful. then I went to the Terror Museum. Oh wow! There, which was um, you know, where you learn about the history, and and yeah. it's hard. You know, I mean, in, in yeah. some ways, you know, they went from you know Nazis taking over, yeah, to their own right wing parties taking over, which was on, in, in ways worse. <laughs> yeah, you're right. And then right. the Russians, yeah. and then the Soviets. You know, <laughs> yeah. taking yeah. over, which. Uh, after the war, they were really, you know, the Soviets had lost like 20 million people in the in the war. So they yeah. were um, into some revenge yeah. uh, in a lot of ways. So it Absolutely. was a hard road either way. But um, I at least appreciate, you know, people ask me why I go to these things, but it's, you know, yeah. you need to have them to remember. No. You know, and You're, appreciate. So but I, I, I do remember those things. Did you ever go to that museum? I didn't go to that one, but I went to that. Um, I think I'm pronouncing it wrong. Sobor Park. It's it basically what it is. It's a park on the edge of Budapest, and it has all of the communist era statues that they took down in 1989, I think, when mm-hmm. um, they went to the democratic system. And they still have all these statues preserved. And it's really, it's unbelievable, you know, to mm-hmm. see, you know, all of these things from the communist era. And um, even, I know this is off topic, but um, the Royal Palace building there, when you read the history of that, and that was used by the Nazis during World War II, that they were firing on the allies, on the allied forces. But when the communists took over, instead of restoring it back to how it was like under uh, Maria Teresa and, you know, these old photos, you see it was absolutely beautiful. They didn't want any memory of that. So they created this new kind of, they, they rebuilt it, but it's not what it was originally. So it's kind of like, it's like if you went to Buckingham Palace and you see this ornate building on the outside, but then you walk in and you see a factory on the yeah. inside. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't mesh what you're expecting and what you see. So I know that was a little off topic. Communist era <laughs> ar- architecture is the worst. I mean, you yeah. you see it throughout Croatia and um, <laughs> all these countries that just like these beautiful, you can see what was like pre-communist, these old yeah. like Baroque, beautiful architecture and Byzantine yes. buildings. And then this concrete, block you know just you know apartment slab yeah that, you know right on you know oh it's so bad but no, uh, you're right you're right i also remember a lot of goulash that i had huh? and the ruin pubs this is a big deal yeah, in uh, budapest so i would describe it to people basically it's it's like a derelict building yeah that people just take over and turn into bars and you yeah. just go all throughout the city they're there yeah, it's amazing. You're right. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, it's really incredible. How do they skirt? Well, I mean, there's ways to get around every law, but I mean, <laughs> right. there's not a lot of public safety rules when it comes to these places. No, no, not at all. Not a lot so of re- inspe- fire inspectors, let's just say. But you're right, though. They could never pull that here. <laughs> no, 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 no. So you were there for a little while. What Did you plan to stay longer than four months or was it just to get the paperwork done and leave? Um, my ultimate plan was to get something 
with the European Union to stay over there permanently. And that's, I ended up coming back because of the pandemic situation and everything. But ultimately, I mean, that's what I would like to do. I mean, I went for the, for this master's in European Union law in London later on with the purpose of staying there in Hungary or, or Brussels even. Um, and just staying on. So I'm still working on it at this point. I, the pandemic kind of messed everything up in a way. Oh, in yeah. every way. For <laughs> Obviously. All of so, so, yeah. so uh, are you, you're back in Long Island now? Just for now, I'm back here. Yeah. Licking your wounds and saving up money? Bingo. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And writing you know, a book? Uh, yeah, I wrote the book. And, you know, we'll, we'll see. We'll see. And, um, you know, I've been doing my Spanish every day, doing the Hungarian and, you know, teaching still, but we'll, we'll see what happens. So well, give, give me another uh, chapter. You had mentioned North Africa. Did you go, was this like Morocco? Did you go down there? No, I didn't get to Morocco. I wanted to, I was in Tunisia the whole time and oh. I went to um, city Bou Said, which the blue and white city there. It's beautiful. It's right on the, up on the water and they've got um, nearby you have Carthage. You have all the, you know, Roman ruins and everything. And um, it's actually interesting, right after I was in Tunisia, just shortly afterwards, they had a um, terrorist attack and everyone got killed in the museum, all these tourists that were in the museum, right where I had been. And it was unbelievable. Um, It must have been, you know, really just unbelievable, unbelievable terrorist attack right after I had been there at the Barda Museum in Tunisia. So it's, but it's beautiful. It's a beautiful city and you know, it's a lot to see. I haven't talked you to know. too many people who have been to Tunisia. Most people, when they go to North Africa, they do go, like on my list is Morocco and Egypt. Well, I, should, well, I haven't been to either. So uh, yeah, but Tunisia, why did you pick there and how long were you there? I was only there for a couple of weeks in Tunisia. Um, so it wasn't that long. But, but less touristy though, right? less touristy yeah and it's not that far from you know you can take the boat from naples it's uh, i forget i think it's like 300 miles it's not that far from the you know southern tip of italy yeah to go over there so yeah the romans knew that yeah and the romans knew it before <laughs> before any of us exactly they were say, wow yeah. this isn't too far we could we could take this place over pretty easy pretty easy yeah yeah, and I mean, what's amazing is when you go to Carthage, which was the center of the Roman, you know, one of the Rome's biggest, you know, out of overseas colonies, or one of the, one of their big, um, you know, was a power center of the Roman Empire, Carthage at the time. And you see these columns, and you see the stuff that's been destroyed, and that's you know they've left it there, the archaeologists and all. But you think about the power and the force all this time ago to to create this kind of destruction. I mean, it's it's amazing because these things are huge. When you see these, the remains of these Roman buildings up close, I mean, the the amount of effort to to build and then to destroy, I mean, it's, mm. it's incredible. Yeah. I mean, I hear there's more ruins, like one of the places with the most Roman ruins are places you don't think about, like places like Libya. Yeah. And I don't think of yeah. Tunisia to go see Roman ruins, but... Yeah, they're there, all, you know, all throughout the Mediterranean, anywhere bordering the Mediterranean, you're going to find Roman ruins. Yeah, it's it's incredible. A friend of mine um, from Turkey in Antalya, I hope I'm saying that right, Antalya in Turkey, mm-hmm. he just sent me all these photos. I didn't know that there was all these Roman ruins even in Turkey. And 
he just sent me a whole pile of photos from there where he's living now. And it's, it's incredible. It was a big empire. It was a big yeah. empire. So Tunisia, I mean, what is the tourist infrastructure there and how easy is it to get around and uh, how was they were okay with English there? Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's, you know, they, there's a lot of catering to foreign tourists. So the English is not a problem. Everything's in Arabic as far as the signs. And as French. And in, in French, Arabic and French. I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah. Cause, cause even city Bou Said, you know, was a French colony. So you have that strong French influence and you see it even in the architecture and the buildings, but yeah, everything's even with, everything being in Arabic or French, there's still like, especially like the Medinas and the areas where they're trying to attract a lot of tourists. People, everybody's most of the people I shouldn't say everybody. Most of the people um, speak English because, you know, just for business purposes. Yeah. It is kind of the closest thing to a world language, which is, you know, lucky for us yeah, as yeah, travelers, exactly. but um, very true. So, how does Tunisia? You've been to Morocco as well. I haven't been to Morocco yet. Oh, you no, haven't? Unfortunately, okay. no, no. I want to get to Morocco, and I want to just like you said, I, I want to see Egypt. That's a dream of mine. Right. Um, so, after the chapter of Tunisia, what was the question posed in the book? You know, I have to look it up to say exactly, <laughs> but I, but but I do know, I do know, it was basically about um, what things are better left in your past, what ruins and what things are better left in your past and what things are worth um, rebuilding and moving on from. So basically um, things, dreams, things that you had in your past that maybe didn't work out or that didn't happen, what's better left alone and what's better, what would you like to still build upon and rebuild moving forward in your life? Um, but I'd have to look up the exact question, but it was, it was to that effect, basically like, you know, <laughs> what, <laughs> what's better left behind and what do you want to focus on going forward in your life? Right. Well, you said you were a teacher at some point, yes. right? I mean, what age, what were you teaching? I had high school kids in New, in New York. Oh yeah. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> New York City. Yeah. Yeah. You can't believe you wanted to leave that. It seems like a, <laughs> such an easy path. Cause I <laughs> come in the crap. I come from a long line of teachers, so I respect it. Um, But um, was that what was the moment when you were teaching that said, you know what, I need, I think I'm ready to find something else? Was that, you remember that last moment? They were like, I'm out. Yeah, yeah, I do. I mean, I was waking up, I was driving into New York City like 4 15 in the morning, and I was a new teacher and I was put in with a group of kids that have been recently released from Rikers Island from the juvenile <laughs> penitentiary. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I had some great kids. They really wanted to learn, but then I also had kids like total anarchy. You know, there was, they're, they're beating their heads against the lockers. They're trying to, we had bars on the windows in the school and they're trying to, you know, break the window and get out. And I said, how the heck are you going to teach in this situation? You have, and I would, there were some great kids and you would try to bring them up and say, you know, okay, anybody wants to, you know, take part in the lesson, what we're doing, come up. And and then I had another, um, this one teacher, she told me, she said, always um, stand with your back. What was it she said? She said, 
she never stand in front of the glass or whatever with the door because she had kids that had smashed it, you know, and she had had her personal, personally, she had had her arm dislocated by some kids that had gotten violent with her. And she was just waiting to get out and retire. And she said, that's the only reason I'm hanging out here. And she said, at the time, she said, you're young, get the heck out of here as quick as you can. But, you know, I had to learn the hard way. So. Yeah, not the <laughs> so, ideal experience, but I mean, no. it's one thing to like, okay, I'm not, I don't want to teach in this school. Yeah. But it's another thing to go, I'm out of teaching altogether. It turned you off that much. You never consider it's like, you know, maybe maybe a nice country school. <laughs> you know, I, I thought about it, but you know, all the there's a lot of politics with yeah. no, the administration and everything. And I still think about it because I love teaching, but I mean At a college level. College or adults, exactly. Like yeah. I I love like teaching people that are learning English, for example. Like I have a number of friends and people in Paraguay that I help with and they've helped me with Spanish too. Mm -hmm. And I just, I don't know the high school situation. I don't know with all the politics and with everything going on. I, I, was, I couldn't, it's do a it. shame. No, well, I feel better hearing that. Thank you. Oh, I couldn't do it. Now my, uh, my brother-in-law teaches high school um, art, you know, they still have an art down in Florida and my sister okay. does um, speech therapy she's the speech therapist but you know of course oh, she teaches little kids you know like yeah first graders you know uh -huh. with speech and stuff like that but yeah my cousins do it my grandmother taught junior high english for oh, I, wow. I find teaching kind of runs through families yeah yeah is the same with you do you have other did your parents do it or any kind of well, family yeah well that's the same exact thing with me with my mom was a kindergarten teacher and yeah. you know i thought because I do love teaching, but I don't like all the Yeah, the but you're not a parole officer. No, I'm not a parole officer <laughs> yeah. here. I mean, or if a I jail, a you know, jail officer. Yeah, if I would have wanted to be a correctional officer, I would have signed up for the civil service test and done that. Right. You know, I mean, this is ridiculous. You know, and that was what. And then with all the with all the politics with the school system right now, too, you know, you're always being told to teach a certain way or to use this, whatever the new technology of the moment is. Mm -hmm. And then they discard whatever they've been using. And it's, yeah. How are these kids going to learn if you're always throwing out and bringing in constant? It's ridiculous. Thank God you got out before the, uh, you had to do zoom teaching. Oh yeah. Yeah. I left out. <laughs> oh man. What a year they had. Um, but anyway, back to the travel. Yes. The, um, so uh, was there places that, disappointed you like you got there and like but this is not what i thought it would be it's a great question i mean hungry was rough going in a lot of ways for me because of the language barrier and then the place where i found myself in this really kind of rough neighborhood of budapest and i was in this old 18th century era building that was very run down. It was cold showers every day. There was no heat, no, you know, it was, it was basically like this, um, this lady from Manhattan used it basically as a store. It was an apartment that she owned, but she basically had it like a storeroom. So she had all her stuff crap. stored in it. Crap stored in it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So it, Budapest, you know, there was a lot of beautiful things. And even when I went out to the countryside and, you know, help them at the vineyard and everything where they were, you know, where they lived, this family. 
but um, it, it didn't live up to. It, it wasn't. It wasn't a fairy tale or something like when you go to London or you go to yeah. Paris and it's more. And Paris had its own interesting things. I ended up in the red light district there, which was interesting to you know. But yeah, wandering around. But hey, there um, are rough rough parts of Paris, man. Yeah, and London yeah. and every, every city. Every, every city, city has a bad neighborhood yeah. or yeah. more. No, absolutely. But very true. Was there family there that you could? Did your father still have family members still around? Ironically enough, he has a sister there, but she never got in touch with him and he never got in touch with her. They've, they've had a falling out over the years, oh. apparently. So there was no family. So that, you know, that made it a lot more difficult, you know, to. Yeah. But, it, you know, it was beautiful. It was, we would go over to, you know, I'd go over the bridge every night to Mark, the Margaret Sigurd, Margaret Island there. And, you know, they have all the festivals and everything going on it's a lot of action in summer it's beautiful but it was a culture shock it was definitely culture shock did you end up getting the uh, eu passport i got the passport out yeah. boy and yeah yeah but and, and i have to renew it actually now so, so hey yeah uh have you gotten a chance to use it like during the pandemic or at all or have you gone anywhere right now i'm just everything got shut down with the pandemic so yeah i have to um Go back into the city, but New York's been volatile, obviously, right now with everything going on there too. And I have to renew it, and then um, that's my next step. That's what I'm hoping. Right, go back over there. Um, is there a place that really, uh, on the flip side, not disappointed mm-hmm. you, but surprised you, and went, "Wow, I didn't expect I'd like this place as much as I did." I mean, I loved Oxford. I mean, it Oxford. Was, okay, yeah, it was. It was great. Just, I mean, I, I also, I loved, um, I loved Columbia too, but you know, with everything there, but I, I'd say Oxford and Columbia, both of those places. But um, as far as Oxford, I was at new college. And even though it's, it's not new, it was founded in 1379, I think, but it was so incredible. All the, you know, was like Harry Potter, basically, <laughs> yeah. you know, the, having dinner every night in the dining hall, going to the college pub, going out in the city, meeting people from South Africa, France, uh, all these different um, Scotland, all these different places all over the world every night. And then, you know, studying there, that was, um, that was incredible. So Oxford was a big surprise because when I first arrived there, I thought, you yeah, know, this is nice, but you don't see anything until you actually go behind the walls of these colleges. You go in and then you, it's like, Oh my gosh, this all this stuff going on. And it's interesting. So, wow. Um, what about, um, uh, what was the other place you said you, you really like Columbia? Cause that was my last, um, foreign trip on January oh, of 2020. Wow. My okay. last flight, I come back from Medellin or Medellin as they, Oh, call I it down there. That. It was How great. Was it was great. I spent a week down there, and uh, you know, I had a great time. But yeah, uh, what what part of Colombia were you were you in? I was in Cartagena, so okay, it's right on the Caribbean Sea. by the sea. Yes, yeah, and much hotter really cool. than where I was. Yeah, I want to see Medellin. 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 Yeah, I want to see that so badly. Yeah. Well, Cartagena is very, uh, very lovely from the photos I saw. It's right on the a big cruise port 
too, actually. And I was working on a cruise, but they dropped me off at Curacao. And uh, so I just, before they were going to send me home. And I said, well, I'd rather, can you send me to Medellin? <laughs> and uh, Medellin? And uh, they said, yeah. So I went there. So, But that was the last trip I took. But Cartagena, I know, is a very popular tourist place. It's right on the sea. Yeah. And uh, so how long were you there? And what what hit you the most? Uh, what made you like it the most? I was only there a couple of weeks in Cartagena, but um, I mean, the climate obviously is beautiful. The people are incredible. I, I love, you know, I love the people. Um, the, you know, they always talk about obviously the, the coffee, which most with people in there, they drink this thing called Tinto, which is not the actual coffee. Everybody says, oh, Colombia and the coffee. But most of the people drink this other version, which is called Tinto, which I forget what it's made of, but it's more like a watered, it's, it's watered it's down. Watered down. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. watered down. It's not. It's not good. It's, no, it's not good. It's not good <laughs> no, at all. No, no. no. Not at all. I not remember at all. I had it there too, and I, I don't know what this is, but I came here for yeah. the good stuff. They ship out the good stuff. You yeah. know, that's what they export all that all that amazing coffee. They export it, and the people who didn't really have a lot of money uh, traditionally drank this stuff, and they got yeah. used to it. And I went, "This is this is not good." <laughs> <laughs> no, no, exactly. Same thing happened to me. Exactly. Yeah. That's exactly right. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And the food was a little disappointing in Colombia, I thought. But yeah, I agree with you. You know, it's a lot of rice and beans and, yep. <laughs> and a lot of fried stuff. So yeah. Yes. I don't know. But I uh, agree with you. the people were great. The women are beautiful. They are. There's they that. Are. And uh yeah, the I, I would like to see Cartagena because historically it looked like just a beautiful place. No, it is. And they've got the Inquisition Palace there where the Spanish Inquisition took place. You wow. know, so and they have actually speaking of um, a terror museum. Well, yeah, exactly. That's exactly what it is. And they, well, they have the guillotine and they have all the torture devices, the um, uh, what's it called? The Spanish tickler and all these things that they used to use to torture the people. But what's great is they have a window <laughs> on the side of the building called the Ventana de la Denunciación which was where you could report your neighbors or turn in anybody that you wanted. So it's not too different from society today you know? Wow. <laughs> where you could, you know, actually just go up and, you know, make an accusation against someone and ah. then get the inquisitors to go, you know, follow it up. Good old Columbus, right? Yeah. Just bring uh, the angel of death for the Americas. It's amazing. It's amazing wow. Um, yeah. But uh, where on your, uh, I don't know, we all have a, I guess a bucket list. And stuff. Where where have, are you dying to get to that you've never been? I want to see the Seychelles. I, hmm. I want to really see that. And I'd like to go to South Africa. I'd like to do one of the um, one of the even the trains, the the historic trains that take you up into the continent. They start out in South Africa and they go up, and you know you can go off, you know, and take you know different um, side trips from there. So I, I'd like to, I'd like to see the Seychelles. I'd like to do South Africa, and at some point, I'd like to see the pyramids, just like you were saying with Egypt. That's always been a dream of mine, and I'm, I'm sorry I didn't get there when I was in, you know, North Africa. I would have loved to have seen that. Every time I was around it or close to it, there was some reason I couldn't go. Like I was there, like oh, wow. I was there pretty close to after the Arab Spring, yeah. and I couldn't get a, a, a good. 
reading from people of whether it was safe or whether it wasn't. And, whether it's, and I was like, well, I'll just wait. And then for one other reason or another, it just never seems to work out. But also the place, I also didn't want to rush it. Yeah. You know, and it seems like a place that needs some time. And uh, it also seems like a place where I, I, you know, and I'm pretty good solo traveler, but mm-hmm. it, to go with people would be kind of nice. Because I tend to find... I mean, as someone who, you know, I'm social to a point <laughs> and, getting, and getting less so as I get older, but, uh, you know, I'm too old to stay in hostels and things like that. Um, it can be kind of isolating to be, especially in, I find, at least in Muslim countries where they don't really drink. So it's not really a pub culture where you would go in and, yeah. uh, you know, grab a beer somewhere and, you know, chat up a bunch of expats or whatever, you know, it exactly. just doesn't really happen that much so yeah. uh, it's hard to harder to do in a in a tea house <laughs> you yeah, know? Yeah, well exactly exactly while you're having your mock rabbit tea and you know exactly yeah exactly. yeah and um so it'd be kind of nice to if not uh at least go with a woman to at least uh bring a friend or or be in a group that'd be kind of nice Absolutely. Um, so but if i wait long enough i'll like any place i'll just end up going myself just because i want to see it i love that uh, but i'd rather not but and it's not easy to get to. Let's face it. I mean, uh, uh, from here, it's far. Now, when you're based in London, you know, I'm envious of them where they could yeah. go on a weekend. Hey, let's go to Egypt for a weekend, hop on a plane. Oh, it's great. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. That's my no. favorite part about Europe is just like you're, you're, you're a quick plane ride to yeah. a million different cultures, which is nice. Oh. It's so nice. I mean, they've got all the cheap flights. You can just get anywhere. And then with the train, you don't need the car all the time, which is just beautiful. I love that. Yeah, I do envy that. So um, what was your hopes for the book and how has it been received, you know, as you put it out? Did you self-publish it and yourself? No, it it was it was in progress from 2014 and it finally got published I, after a lot of rejection um, in 2020. It finally got, I finally found a publisher and it, it succeeded. That's great. Um, so, you know, I, I just hope it more than anything, I hope it leads to exposure. I hope it just helps to, you know, get my name out there and, you know, it, that it ultimately leads on to the next adventure, that it's, it's a catalyst to getting me to whatever that next step is going to be. So <laughs> that's, that's my hope for it. And, you know, we'll see what happens. How were you received uh, around these places? Um, you know, America, especially in the last five years or so, have taken a little bit of a, uh, a hit overseas <laughs> in terms of yeah, our relations. Yeah. How were you Absolutely. received as an American in these places and, and it did it differ in say Hungary as opposed to I don't know Tunisia or Britain yeah I mean in Hungary I mean you know most of the people were very friendly I had one incident somebody yelled something at me like you know get the fuck out of here American or something yeah. when I was crossing the bridge you know but you know it wasn't somebody who knew me personally um, How did they know you were American? Were you wearing your big? Uh, I don't know. I guess the way we look. I guess your you know, University of Kansas. Uh, no. you know, yeah. were you wearing a white New Balance shoes? I don't know something? how they knew, but I guess you know we do stand out. You do stand out normally. You know they have some indication. I guess you know I'm walking but, over this bridge. 
you could pass for Hungarian. I mean, oh, thanks. <laughs> that's that's not like it is not like you were in uh, you know Cambodia or something. No, no, exactly. But you know, the people like all right, even in England and Scotland and all, you know, they would they would judge you personally. They would judge you as a person, and yeah, you know, I had a great time. Everybody was friendly. It. There was no, even if they didn't like the United States and they didn't like the United States policies and, you know, generally I'd agree with them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. You know what I mean? I'm, what am I going to say? But it was, you know, judging you on a personal level as a person. It wasn't, you know, they know that most people know that you don't have anything to do with the politics. You don't, you know, you're not some big shot that controls what's going to happen in the country so yeah i mean they're not happy with america but they're not going to judge you for it right (laughs) was there ever a a decision to say i mean have you written off (laughs) i don't want to say written off america but, but, but the plan was always to live and work overseas was there a part of you that said i want to stay here but um have you did you always look elsewhere? I mean, that's always been my dream to some de- to some degree because I I got very disillusioned with a lot of what I saw going on here in the United States and with a lot of my experiences and especially with when I went into the legal field and with what I saw in the court system, the judges, the lawyers, everything, and I became very disgusted. Not not to be negative, but just with what I saw going on. And um, I just, you know, and in the larger political situation throughout the years and everything. So there's, there's always been this, not because every country has its own problems. I'm not, you know, I realize that. Yeah, no, there is you know, no, there is no perfect place. No, you're there not running no, to utopia. Yeah. No, it's, it's not. But what I like about, getting overseas, wherever that may be, is I like all the history. I like the culture. I like meeting different people from all over the world and interacting and learning the languages and all of that. And that's, that's a big thing with me. And I, that always held a lot of appeal. So there's always been that bent with me to, you know, just the way I've, I've seen things going. For many years in the United States, it's it's very disappointing. Was there a certain kind of law that you were st- studying, or you specialized in? Well, I I went for European Union law at King's College London when I right. did the the masters after the the doctorate. So that was, and that's still the goal. Ultimately, whether I do the PhD or whatever, I don't know at this point. I'm still, you know playing with the idea. Um, but I went for the European Union law because I wanted to work over in Europe. I wanted to work in Brussels. When I was here in the United States, I did a lot of different things. I worked for a federal judge for a while. I worked for a criminal lawyer. I worked for the, the other side, the prosecution. <laughs> um, I did real estate. I did matrimonial law. But none of that ever held any real passion for me. I wanted to, and I still I, I don't want to practice law. I want to teach at this point, teach in a college or a university or a law school. But I want to do something on the international level at this point mm-hmm. in my life. I don't, I don't like the day-to-day of it. 
How does it work with the law in, say, let's pick, you know, Britain, for example, uh, for you to practice law there, would you have to be a British citizen? Yeah, I mean, you have to get qualified as a solicitor. Initially, yeah. you'd have to go through their process. So I think, and I could be wrong, but I think the path really is with the teaching, you could still use the American law degree, but then like what I have with the master's in European Union law. And then if you, you could teach at a college, but you couldn't practice law, you'd have to get qualified in one of the 27 EU countries. You'd have to get qualified as a lawyer. So you'd have to go through the exam and the process, but I have no interest in practicing law anywhere in the world. So that's, that's a dead issue at this point. (laughs) It's funny. It's like a lot of my friends who went, I would say most of my friends who went through law school, okay. Um, most of them are not lawyers. Really? Either by, either they, it was never their plan to become a lawyer because you can only use a law degree. I mean, someone became an agent, you know, or a talent agent, or uh, they work in the on the corporate side, or they went in yeah. politics or something like, you know, the, you can use a law degree in a lot of different ways. Mm-hmm. And the others, well, a lot of them didn't, had no plans to practice law, but okay. the ones that did have a plan to practice law, a lot of them did it for like you did like a year or two. And they were like, well, I'm out. Nope. (laughs) That's great. No, this is not, they hated it. They hated it. Um, It's a miserable field. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And then, and then others are, you know, love it and became very successful. So it's a weird mix, but it's like, it's very interesting to see. I wonder how many other specialties are like that. They go, you never hear people going through very few people go through medical school yeah. And then it's like, nah, I, I tried being a doctor for a couple of years, hated it. Now I'm doing this. Some do, I love that. but, uh, but so many in law, just like, yeah. I was like, so well, you got your law degree. What are you going to do? Well, I'm not going to be a lawyer. I was like, wow. Okay. <laughs> and a lot of, there's that. a lot of uh, ex lawyers that are comedians that I know. I know a number of them. Really? I didn't, yeah. really, I didn't know that. Wow. Yeah. They, and uh, well, I mean, working a crowd and working a jury is not that, not that different no you're trying to win them over one way or another you know so it's a lot of Ah. the same skills i love Um, that yeah it's pretty interesting but anyway um and i love that analogy yeah it's it's really it's really interesting but um so now that you is do you have a plan set to go back or you just kind of a wait and see to see how the new delta variant uh (laughs) works out (laughs) exactly exactly yeah, I mean, you know, because there, you know, restrictions are changing by the day over there, just like over right. here right now. So I'm waiting to see because I don't want to launch into anything until you know there's more st- there's more stability about how things are going to work as far mm-hmm. as um, travel and moving around. But I, I'm looking into it right now, and it's just you know, it's just a matter of what path I'm going to pursue at this point because. Um, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know if I want to sit through a PhD at this point in my life. I'm a little <laughs> tired. I don't know. Um, yeah. You know, but we'll see what happens. I don't know. <laughs> well, let's get your plugs in. Where can people uh, follow you? Give me your, uh, are you on Instagram? Are you on Twitter? Are you on all these other platforms? Okay. Um, I'm just on Facebook right now. And it's my name, Robert Babrad, author. And um, so I'm I'm just on there at the moment. But 
all my stuff is there. And then also, of course, on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, um, the book is there, all the major websites. Okay, well, send me those links, and uh, I'll put them up with the story. And uh, we'll have links to your book, and it's called The In-Transit Passenger. Yes. All right. And uh, so so finally, what do you think your experience is not only writing the book, but traveling in general? And this is what I ask everybody at the end of every episode. What what did it teach you about yourself, about the world, and, and people in general? Well, I think about myself, I think, the biggest lesson I learned is you have to be authentic to who you really are. You can't force yourself into a mold that society might tell you to fit into. So whether that's, you know, be a lawyer or be a teacher or do this or that, if it doesn't connect with who you really are. And I knew, I knew from a young age, I love travel. I love meeting people. I love cultures, languages. And I tried to force myself into a mold that wasn't me in a lot of ways. So, so for writing that book, so what led to writing that book was it got me back to who, who I was more authentically, which is moving around the world, meeting people from all over and exchanging, you know, cultures and ideas and everything. Um, but um, so as far as travel, I just think what you learn is it's, it's amazing. The world is a lot bigger than you think. You know, I think, you know, we get caught up in whatever country we live in and whatever the story is, wherever we live. And then you get outside and you say, no, 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 there's, there's a lot more going on. There's a lot more ways to look at life and the world. This is not it. And <laughs> I mean, I, I think that's the biggest thing about travel. It's, it changes your life. It opens your mind. And you just say, it's a lot more to life than what I've been told or what I've been seeing around me. That's totally, totally right. And I couldn't have said it better myself. Even though I've said it many times and I try to convince people of it, it's always good to hear someone else say it as well. So, uh, Robert, thank you so much for, uh, for, for reaching out to me, man. I appreciate you uh, connecting with me, and congrats on the book. Thank you. Ed, shoot me a copy of that thing. I Send definitely me any copy. Will. I'd love that. Absolutely. Mike. Yeah, thank I'd love you to so see much. it. Uh, hang on. I'll talk to you after we uh, wrap this up. I Robert Babarad. There it is. There it is. All right. <laughs> Rob Babarat. <laughs> Rob Babarat, everyone. Thanks. Thanks.